Hi, this is Lachlan Giles, and you're listening to Inside Position, which will soon be known as Outside Position. Sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. I'm delighted to be back for the second half of season one with some really interesting guests coming up soon. Today's guest is the first of a two-part episode with the star of the most recent ADCC World Championships, Lachlan Giles. Lachlan is one of the most interesting people in the sport, someone who has a very cerebral approach to both training and competition itself. We had a great chat about everything from running his own gym, innovation in the sport, and also about his epic performance at the most recent ADCC event, submitting three giants along the way to claiming a bronze medal in the openweight division. As usual, if you enjoy the podcast, it helps a lot if you can share it with your friends and follow and subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes. Here we go with part one of two with Lachlan Giles. Hi Lachlan, thanks for coming on the show. No worries, thanks for having me on. I don't know if we've, we haven't really, we've definitely never trained together, but we have, we've met before in person. Yeah, we've bumped into each other a good few times, but we've never had proper good chat i suppose it's kind of funny the jiu-jitsu community you feel like you know people even though you actually don't yeah that's right (laughs) but i wanted to get started with actually the first time i kind of heard about you was probably at ebi5 i remember that was probably the time you kind of broke onto the scene for most of the world and you submitted haniyaya with a very nice kimura armbar and i was just wondering what took you so long to kind of make it onto the the top level because you had been training a long time already you were a black belt for a few years and was there anything you changed that helped you get to that kind of world level? That's a good question. I think I, fe- I really feel like it was a, to me, it felt like a very slow progress. I never, I never really felt like I made any, in fact, the biggest jump I can actually think of in my level was, was probably in the lead up to ADCC 2019. That's when I felt like I, you know, that year and that last six months, I kind of, when I started kind of adapting my leg locks and doing them a bit differently. I felt like I'd made the the biggest improvement I ever have, but I felt like I was slowly getting better results. And I think I was it's something I could measure to some degree in Australia. There was this guy, a Brazilian guy, William Diaz, Will Diaz. He's quite a really good competitor actually. He's done he's done quite well um internationally himself, although most people probably wouldn't know who he is uh, from an international point of view. But he I at fought him in Australia maybe I think we fought seven times uh, or maybe nine. I think we fought nine times and I lost seven times in a row to Will Diaz. He's a little bit heavier, but um, so we'd often meet in open weight or in like, um, you know, super fight events or whatever. <laughs> and um, I lost to him seven times in a row, but each one got like closer to, you know, it was like first I got submitted I think first two times was submission, then it was like points for like a back take, and then it was, then it was like two points, a couple of times, and then it became advantages, and then referee decisions. I lost like three referee decisions in a row, I think, and I was getting mad at the refs. I was like, oh, "Give me one of them," you know. Uh, and then I finally had a, a match where I, the last two actually, I, I fought him. It was in the same day, but I managed to get a submission and then just a. I think a points victory as well. And I was like, okay, this is good. But, but it was kind of like, yeah, so that, that to me was kind of a sign of of continuing progress. So, And did you change anything over the years that helped you get the better results over in Australia in terms of training? Oh, there's probably kind of like two major phases. Like I was, 
the phase where I was kind of like a bit of a jiu-jitsu nomad and I was like I had a, a kind of I guess like a base gym but I was also doing quite a lot of cross training um seeking out you know I was training with Kit Dale a lot who was he was really you know was a really good up and coming I was a higher belt than him but he was kind of beating me up <laughs> I think like I was a brown belt he was a purple belt I think but he was like really good so I started training with him a lot and some other people started their own gym and I, I'd kind of try to train around as, as much as I can and and that was kind of um closed one-on-one like I'd just train with Kit for an hour and a half you know it would be just us and with specific train and I, I thought it was quite smart training I'd be studying you know I'd I think I was trying to learn the Berambolo at first and I, w- I would do really well and then the next time I rolled him he'd just figured it out and he would just shut it down and I'd get mad I'd go home and I'd watch the the Mendez brothers and I'd analyze trying to see how they deal with the reactions that kit was giving me and i'd come back and um try to learn that way um and that was really good so that was kind of a phase that i went through and then at some point i went to i spent six months in brazil Liv and i did a a big kind of world tour with a plan when we get back from that of opening up a gym and so obviously the the trip to brazil was quite intense training we're training at alliance so some of the best guys in the world which is obviously that was really good training and then to come back and running a gym I was I was lucky to actually take over from the gym that Kit was was running because he was he was off to the states and then it was kind of like being in charge of creating my own program and you know the, the focus is probably less on me it's, it's actually a really hard thing to as you know to to run a gym and focus on your students and yourself as a competitor you know it's like really I think it is getting to the point now where to be a top level international competitor you've got to be quite selfish with your training and it's got to be you've got all your time to you and then you can have extra time for teaching and so on but you you really need to spend a lot of time on yourself you know and that's it goes to like match study and videotape and and all that sort of stuff so and how was the scene back then when you started getting into coaching and kind of starting your own gym because in the last few years it seems like it's really exploded i mean it's definitely more popular now but i think i mean i was i started 19 years ago maybe so like I've, <laughs> it's a big difference. Uh, I think it's less of a difference in the last three years than it's been from when I started to, you know, like, you know, I think when I started, people didn't even know what MMA was, you know, like now everyone knows MMA and grappling. And when I started, it was like, I knew what MMA was. And I was like, this is this crazy, you know, <laughs> this, this crazy sport where people are, you know, fighting and jujitsu is like this really good martial art, but no one, no one knew had any idea what I was talking about. So um, it's it's changed massively since then developing your own students has that kind of helped your training i was wondering because i feel sometimes when i'm doing a lot of coaching i'm actually technically much more precise in my own training develop your own students into the kind of drilling partners you like or was there any upsides to it i suppose yeah yeah no it's it absolutely i think um when you are coaching you're forced to take a technical approach whether you like it or not really it's like you have to be at least i mean if you if you're putting any effort into your coaching then you have to be trying to answer people's questions and you're watching them roll and going like well you're trying to do a move but it's not working like what's the what's the key details that you're missing so i think i think that's a huge part and and then that makes you reevaluate why things work and how best to teach them and then of course that adapts your own game i actually think to be honest making making my instructionals is probably the best thing I've done because I, cause I actually do a lot of um, in that I, I kind of feel myself rolling and I yeah because I kind of teach it and I'll feel myself rolling and I go through that and I do some narration and then when I'm doing the narration I'm usually like oh I said 
I said that I really do this, but when I, in actual fact, when I watch it, I don't do that at all. I do like this, and then I have to go back and refilm and <laughs> teach it how I'm actually doing it, or or maybe reanalyze when I do that scenario, or when I do the. So it really like makes it a lot clearer what I do, and then it's I think then when you're applying it, you, you know, once you know, like, oh, I'm actually looking for this, you can start honing in on that and, and improving it. So is it like it makes it more organized in your head or something? Because your instructionals actually are one of the most organized ones that I've seen. They were kind of a bit ahead of the game. Now everyone is organizing them into, let's say, the systems and step by step. But I remember even a few years ago, if someone had a question on particularly underhook half, because I don't play that game very much, I would just tell them, go home, YouTube, Lock and Giles. <laughs> and, uh, they still didn't sweep me with it, but it improved a good bit. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I think, I, I mean, I wonder, I, I'm trying to think where that came from. I think the fact that I had to, that might actually come from academia a bit. I obviously do my PhD and, and I think you had to kind of write like that. You had to kind of like structure everything. It's it's taking a extremely complex topic and presenting it in a way that um, that is digestible, which I think is... And 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 that can be navigated, you know. Like I wanna, I wanna know this part. How do I, how do I find that? And I think probably going through that process with a PhD and having my supervisors make me rewrite it about three times made me think a lot more about how to structure things that, in a way that people like. So I'm kind of doing the same in my coaching at the moment. Like obviously, a few years ago, I used to be all about detail this, detail that, and now I'm trying to do it in two details. But then people are coming up to me and saying. Uh, can we have some more like I don't have a clue what to do and I'm like well try and figure it out yourself you know or for the first few rounds of drilling I'll just give them the broad outline and then I'll see the questions but I wonder how do you find the balance between giving your students too much and not giving them enough because I've always seen more benefit from actually giving them a bit less I see the coaches mm. who kind of answer everything straight away the students don't develop it themselves and then they don't hang on to it or kind of feel it in the same way so I was wondering how you find the balance for that with your own students. That's I think that's the hardest thing about coaching is like how yeah how much information to give. It's just like I more see it as a I see it more as a problem of you've got a room full of mixed experience and you you could teach fifty details for for a technique and the guy who loves that you know if it's fifty fifty leg locks and I've got someone in the class that loves fifty fifty leg locks I might have to teach my like everything I know just so that that person might so pick they up get one thing. Yeah, they get one thing and they're like, oh, that's actually, that's interesting. Like Lachlan does it that way. I'm going to try that, you know, like that. Um, but of course, if it's someone new that, that doesn't play 50-50 leg locks, they're not going to, that's just too much. I'd rather people have a somewhat narrower game, but be good at it and realize like, oh, actually, like if I get good at something, like if I get good at these techniques and learn all the details well, it's actually, they actually work. And then expose them to like, you know, get get, it, get them set up and ready to so there's some things in that program that kind of make it so like when they want to go and learn an open guard it's going to be a bit easier but it's not we're not kind of giving them too much because I used to do it I used to do that class a lot broader I was like oh what does a you know what would a blue belt want to know and I kind of had all these different things I'm like well a blue belt should know what Delaheva is so like I put some Delaheva you know, and then I was like oh I'm actually giving them I'm giving them too much and they're not good at anything. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously some would be, but like if someone's just showing up, it doesn't doesn't make them necessarily good at any one thing. And I'd rather them be good at one thing and then build from there. Yeah, it's tricky to find the right way to do it when there's a mixed level in the training because I would usually yeah. try and teach to the highest level. But then 
you don't want the people who are lower to kind of stay lower for too long. But I would be thinking a lot about what what's different between teaching beginners and teaching advanced. Because one of my friends actually told me something interesting recently. Because a lot of the time it's blue, purple belts that are teaching the beginner's class because the head coach doesn't want to, you know. But then he was saying in, in secondary school, it's usually the most, the highest level teacher who teaches the remedial class. And I was, I was thinking about that and I was like, that's actually pretty interesting. You give them a good start and then they can teach themselves almost, you know. So that's why I like to make someone good at something first and then they can almost teach themselves another position. Everyone I know that got very good kind of took their learning into their own hands. And I think, I think it's, you need someone like hovering over you, like watching almost every role if if you wanted someone to to actually like tell you exactly what to do and how to improve and I think in a class setting the the role of the coach is not to like tell everyone exactly what their game plan should be I, th- I think it's kind of like expose them to different I think it's important that you're showing stuff that works I try and I try to do minimal amount of time showing um, kind of weird and and fancy stuff so most of it's just like fundamental positions or movement it doesn't have to i mean it can look fancy if it works i don't care if it's fancy but um if it doesn't work i, I or if it rarely works i try not to show it too much they're going to work out their own style but they have to if they really want to like compete at a, at a high level i think they have to take their their learning into their own hands to a certain degree i was wondering as well what you think about competitors who are terrible at teaching because that's one of the things that confuses me like i see people they're amazing on the mats they're super athletic they're actually even quite technical but they just don't have a clue what they're doing. It's like they're just natural with their technique. And then when they teach it, they actually don't even know how to mm. do it. They teach it like the wrong way that they don't do it. I'm just wondering how some of those people are so good. <laughs> I feel like a lot of them start when they're kids or something. I don't know if you've had experience with that. but I think that would be, a th- I think people who start as, as a kid would be much more likely to be like that. But I think, to be honest, even for myself, like th- there's definitely times where I... I'm taught something and then I add it to my game. But there's a lot of things that I just start doing. You know, I'm playing a position and I start doing it. And then it's only when I'm like, like kind of what I was saying with my instructionals, like I'll start teaching it to someone and then I'm like, oh, I'm actually doing I don't, I don't realize what I'm doing until I start teaching it. So I think if you get a coach who's not particularly observant, you've got someone who's teaching something but they're not observant like they're like oh i just do it like this and they're not actually going like oh do i actually they're not asking the question is that actually what i do and then you know for me when i'm rolling after i've taught something i'm like oh i taught them like this but you know this happens so i think it's just about being observant and then being willing to change you know i I usually teach things first how i was taught them you know if if however the first time i learned an armbar i'm pretty sure i just try and repeat that same if I've never taught it to anyone, I'm going to probably teach the armbar like, oh, you grab it like this. And then when I start rolling, I'm like, oh, actually, you know, like I I tend to add this detail in and this for me works really well. So maybe it's just a case of them not having as much experience coaching. But I wanted to get into as well innovation, which is one of my favorite things in jiu-jitsu. I'm always trying to think how can I not create something new, but put a new spin on something do a technique in a different way that someone isn't expecting because i think that's one of the big advantages that i can have over someone obviously i'm not the most juice head fella in the world so i need to find other ways around around it to try and submit the lads and you're probably one of the biggest innovators in the last few years 
I was wondering what your process is for it, how you figure out new techniques. For you at your level, it would obviously be really good. And, and for myself, it's good to like take positions that we're playing with and, and try to tinker with them and see what angles and so on will work for us. But I think, I think for your average, you know, like for your average purple belt, there's, there's probably just, they're going to lot, they're going to get a lot more out of their training, just kind of copying what the best guys do, you know, like, cause there's, there's probably some big holes there that they're missing that the best guys are doing. Um, but I think once you kind of like, okay, I know how, you know, I know how Leandro Lowe does his knee cut pass and I've tried to copy that. What, what can I play with to, to help me? And for me, it's mostly, it's mostly troubleshooting based, you know, I like, I won't say I made up anything from, I don't think anything I did from 50, 50 was new, but I think I probably just like, favored some certain movements within there that other people were doing a lot less or i might put pressure in it you know like just within that i i liked certain controls that other people used but not to the same degree as i did but and a lot of it was just from troubleshooting like i'd, I'd be rolling someone and they'd get out a certain way and usually if it happens once i kind of ignore it but then when they do it twice i'm like mm. i grab them at the end of class and i go can you can you do that you know, let, let's start from usually specific training if I could like, let's start from here and try and get out and I try to change my leg position or do something to stop them from doing that and, and that's kind of how you know, it often work out that one angle works really well to or one defensive thing works really well to, to stifle their their counter I probably try to innovate more than I should <laughs> as in like yeah. I, I just enjoy the process of going like I wonder if I grab this here but uh same yeah um <laughs> Have you ever gone down a rabbit hole that didn't pay off at all and you regretted maybe wasting a couple of months on some position or 99% of the things that I try that I think would work when I'm just like, Oh, what if I try this? And the person's not resisting. And I'm like, yeah, that feels pretty good. And then I try it in rolling and then I'm like, Oh, they can just, you know, they can just posture and it all falls apart. Uh, so most of the time it doesn't work. That, that's why I say like, I feel like for me, like most of the core game that exists in Jiu-Jitsu, I've got a pretty good handle on. Like there's definitely things I can improve on there. Like uh, in just like in every position, there's things I can improve on that are fundamental, but it's hard. It's very hard for me to find what they are. So, but I probably should spend more time doing that than trying to just play around with some different stuff. Yeah. And how do you recognize then when you're on the right track? Because that's one of the biggest skills I see is people just knowing what they should put their time into when training. Obviously, you don't want to put 10 years into nogi, baseball, bat choke or something like that. How do you realize then when you're on the right track with something? Is it that it's working inspiring or it just feels like it clicks? Or That's where it's hard because I think good if you've got some really high-level training partners to to test it on. Because like for me, I feel like at, my, at, at Absolute, like if I, if I can take whatever I'm working on and bring it to some of our better black belts and I can actually get it. No, I mean, not a hundred percent, but if I can get it a few times, I'm like, okay, this is a, this is legit. But th there's been quite a few things that have been like, Oh, this is an interesting move. And I'll try it on the purple belts and it'll work. And I'm like, Oh, I'm onto something. And then I step it up and then the black belts kind of, they have their, and they're like, shut it down and turn it against me. I'm like, mm, okay, never mind. You have to try it on the best guys at your, at your gym. What I did with the 50, 50 stuff was just, look at the Meow brothers and how they how they're entering into the legs and go okay that's going to work well with the 50 50 heel hooks that i want to do even though they weren't doing many heel hooks i knew that the the style and the way they were playing their guard would um would fit really well with my game so that wasn't really innovating it was just 
stealing, <laughs> stealing a style and yeah, yeah. and making Just it my own it together well. in different ways. Yeah. yeah. And do you think there's any value in once you come up with something new, like let's say you're fifty fifty running up to ADCC, that people hadn't really seen that type of style entering from the outside, and they're kind of caught out before they real really realize the danger. Do you think there's value in keeping that? a secret for a bit kind of the old school gracie way i've never been a fan of keeping secrets but i think if, you, if you've got a secret weapon like that it probably is there probably is some value you know like the thing is i, I think from like i probably could have put you know i could have put all that information out there a year ago and i think because i wasn't like the favorite for the division i think most people wouldn't have paid attention to like i don't think anyone would have been any more well prepared for what i brought on that day but I think um, if I was going to fight those same guys again now, I think it would be a, a lot harder to, to implement that strategy just now that they know. The pro- I assume they've had some experience dealing with people in training now um, fighting that style. So It does seem to be a little bit trickier with the lighter people because they're more accepting of the seated position or double pull or just sometimes they just freak out and flip around and try to take your back. I, I don't know, like... Uh, it definitely still works at the lighter weights, but I think people are more used to the the leg. They yeah, accept, they accept the neutral position a bit more than the big lads just want to accept nothing. Yeah, and then they get heel hooked. Yeah, <laughs> bigger feet too, which are easier to catch. <laughs> and what were your early influences for the leg locks? I was looking at your your like competition record recently. And it's funny, there's a lot of different submissions down along the way. And then it gets to 2018, 2019, and it's like inside heel hook, inside heel hook, inside heel hook, inside heel hook. So I was wondering what was the kind of secret sauce to changing your game like that just over the last few years? I think I was um, quite well primed to start doing the standard, in, I guess I'll, I'll say inside leg positioning and, and the leg locks from there. I, I always tried to copy Marcelo Garcia for a while. So I was, I was single leg X, shin to shin, butterfly, get on the inside, get to uh, single X. And then I played a lot with um, outside Ashy and, and the saddle for a long time. And it just, for me, slowly, I think it's, I probably blame Craig just for like destroying my faith in like outside Ashy. <laughs> um, every time I'd go there, like there's this point, you know, you go there and he, gets out and you end up in a really bad spot and also or, or submitted. I'm like, okay. And then you try and make adjustments and it just keeps getting worse. And, and then at a certain point I was like, all right, this is a, at a certain point I was like, this is a bad idea. Maybe not on everyone. Um, but against Craig, it seemed like it was a really bad idea. So, um, then I just say going, okay, well leg across body is a bit nicer. It's harder for them to like, um, come down into a really good spot. Um, if they escape, and obviously you got saddle and so on, and then um, so that sort of just um, slowly morphed into preferring fifty fifty for whatever reason. And um, yeah, so what were the? I mean, the influences were. I think at first, like um, I kind of, I, I maybe ten, fifteen years, maybe twelve years ago, I went in the ADCC trials, and I knew that I was just like, well, what does most people suck at is heel hooks so i just i just saw that as a, a weakness so i already knew that that was an area to try to exploit um but i didn't have a great system um i think i then then a, shortly after i watched ryan hall's 50 50 dvd and i started playing 50 50 so it's actually where i probably actually started getting some system there but then then it was when i saw um 
actually, I remember probably a week or two before my first ADCC trial, maybe second ADCC trials, I remember just grabbing someone and saying, let's start in 50-50 and we'll just try and heel hook each other. And we did like a week or two of specific training for that. And that like, that helped a lot. Obviously, you'd need more than that nowadays. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and then it was seeing like Eddie Cummings, Gary Ton, and those guys playing like a, a quite a systematic style. You know, you were seeing them doing um, the, these positions, you know, like the, the positions that weren't really there in IBJJF. You know, you wouldn't go to the saddle in IBJJF. You wouldn't go to outside Ashy. Like I, when I first saw outside Ashy, I was like, yeah, that's nice, but it's a leg drag. Like that's not going to work. And then, <laughs> and then um, that's my that was my first impression of it. Like I was like, yeah, like Eddie Cummings doing doing this leg lock position, but it's not going to work on you know a good grappler. Um, and then I was obviously playing with it. I was like, okay, you know, it's actually it's legit. Um, and and seeing that he had like a full system from there, and then the saddle probably didn't I didn't think of as as less as, as such a vulnerable position, but. Um, Another position that you wouldn't really see in IBJJF. There's no real reason, although people are starting to use it now just for sweeps. But um, yeah, there was no major reason to to look for it. Um, and yeah, seeing like that play out so well for leg locks, and it was kind of different. People didn't know how to defend it. So uh, yeah, those guys were were a huge influence. And was the specific training? Did that help a lot with? developing the leg locks and stuff because it seems like it seems like you do a lot of specific training i know it's my favorite way to train as well i feel like i get the most benefit from that and i can do a lot more rounds of specific training than maybe normal hard rounds how do you balance the different training methods like drilling specifics versus normal rolling i feel like the better you get the more the rolling's helpful the earlier you are through the more like there's like drilling through to specific drilling specific training and rolling like as like a spectrum and i think very early on the drilling just getting used to the movements because you're probably not going to get that right at first and then you've got the specific training there's no it's kind of hard to learn a movement without trying it and seeing what you're supposed to, what it's supposed to feel like and what resistance feels like so you need to mix the the drilling and the specific training together a lot and then uh, the rolling at first really should just be to kind of let you know what you should be working on like you're like okay i get get stuck here or i can't do this or or whatever and then as you get better starts becoming more specific training less a little less drilling and a little more rolling and, and i feel like as a training 19 years i feel like for me most of my roles i can if i'm just rolling i can be I'm, I'm always working so i always got like i guess what you call deliberate practice but i'm always I, I very rarely roll and just go like i'm gonna tap this guy as many times as I can or or they tap me as many times like I, I very rarely do that I'm usually like I'm trying to get I'm working on this but I'm going to try and find my entries to it try and figure it out and work from there and then if there's something that's really bothering me I'll, I'll specific train it but at the way we structure our classes for the pros is usually like a 10 minute warm-up which is just drills and then we get into specific training which can be anywhere from like 15 minutes to sometimes up to half an hour depending what what we're working and then um and then rolls for the last kind of 35 40 minutes 50 minutes sometimes but that's one of the benefits of being the most experienced people in the room some of your roles can actually be almost like active drilling i, f I feel like the, i feel like for me rolling is mostly specific training depending obviously there's people uh, you know there's some people at the gym that'll roll and i'm uh, i'm 
fighting for my life and then <laughs> um, but they're good too you know because that's like you can try your a game and you get to see you know where you, the holes in your a game are which is really good training for me too so getting on to then longevity because you've had a long career you said there you're training what probably close to 20 years now at this stage how do you keep such good longevity and seem to be getting better and better each year and still putting on great performances where you see other people die off let's say earlier in their career it's really about cumulative injuries right um and having a, a good style like no not a good style but a good st- so a safe style <laughs> a safe style yeah so to me the most dangerous thing for your body is explosive movements you know and just just general like you see those i see these like 22 year olds that you know black belt world championships and they're just throwing the you know, even just part I, I very rarely like just throw the legs around and like everything's like that's hard. it's a lot of force on your body and if you're training like that as well then i don't I don't think you're gonna have a long career if, if you're doing it like that which is fair enough i mean if you're like second best in or, you know third best in the world and you just need like one more year of going absolutely crazy to be the best then go for it you know like that's i think you probably reach your current potential a bit quicker training like that but i've always had a very long-term view i'm like okay i'll, I'll i tend to have a slower style i'm not particularly explosive and i think probably partially deliberate um in that i think um I, I don't know if it's like genetic i'm just like a bit slower like with my movements or if it's um like as in like a, a powerful movement i never like i never pretty much never like try and pick someone up and you know do anything crazy like that so i think that's important and then just like i, I suppose being a, a physiotherapist understanding when something's an injury occurring and when it's just soreness and, and understanding that and i try to be pretty smart like if i'm really run down these days like if i I've, I've definitely in the past trained where if i was sore i would kind of like drag myself in for the second training session of the day or whatever now i just if i don't feel good i just have a day off and I'd, i feel like i learn more and i compete I compete role better if i'm actually just excited to show up and train and and it's like i'm in a good mood for it because i'm not not extremely tired so is that training load i think is important um which is just like uh, what I mean by training loads, like don't vary it too much. Don't go from like, if you have three weeks off because you're injured or like you've been on a holiday or whatever, don't come back and go crazy because that's the time you're going to most likely get injured. Your body can quite quickly decondition to um, to a lower training load. And it requires time to build up back to a, to a decent training load. Yeah, but I, I mean, now I'm only really doing I'm doing one of those pro sessions a day, so one and a half, two hours training, and then I'm teaching at night. I might, if I'm feeling good, I'll I'll jump in for a couple of rolls. If, if not, I'll I'll rest. So it's, I'd probably say I'm training once a day most of the time, but I'm quite happy with that. How about you? I'm pretty similar. That's kind of what I like because then my mind is active in it twice a day for let's say four or five hours, and I'm getting two hours hired in during yeah. the day. And I always show up with a plan. I think that's one of the biggest things. Like I'm always working on something. Yeah. Like before before training, I have my coffee and then I make sure I read my notes from yesterday and what I'm trying to work on today and just little things just so you have a little idea of something to do. And then I feel like I get a really good quality of training and I can keep it very consistent, like six days a week for the whole year. You know, yeah. no months off, no injuries, touch wood. You know, and I think I mean, that for me, that's what works. I've definitely dropped it off a little bit. I, in the lead up to ADCC, I was because I was trying to learn, I was trying to be 
not just I wanted to be a good wrestler and I've backed up basically stopped wrestling at the moment but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like I was training three maybe four sessions probably often four wrestling sessions a week and I, I, would, I was barely doing any jiu-jitsu for a while and then I was so when I was just doing jiu-jitsu it was pretty much just leg locks and wrestling that was basically like 70 percent of my training and a few a few roles in between but um, it was uh yeah but i had to back right off on the jiu-jitsu because trying to learn a new sport and wrestling so hard on the body so i was definitely like that that wasn't sustainable that's why i've kind of dropped i don't feel like at my age i can i mean i could i could wrestle but it's like how long i want to be able to do this in you know, 20 years especially time, when you have less experience with it and your body isn't naturally as efficient with it i'd say it kind of wears it out a yeah little bit exactly more. big thanks to lachlan for coming on the show i really took a lot from the different advice he gave about how to have some longevity in the sport coming from someone who's been training for 20 years competing at a very high level teaching and also someone who has a phd in physiotherapy next week's episode part two with lachlan We'll have lots of little gems like that as well. We touch more on his epic performance at ADCC and also much, much more. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, it's a big help if you can share it with your friends and also follow the podcast to avoid missing any future episodes. Until next week, Slánagas Bannacht. Slánagas Bannacht.